But being resilient is much more important than being brilliant. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Welcome to the podcast B2B SaaS CEOs with me, Joseph Olsen, as your host. I'm the CEO and founder of VAM that helps sales teams close more deals and book more meetings through video messaging. The idea to this podcast was born because one of my personal goals is to be a world-class B2B SaaS CEO and therefore I need to learn from the best. And I want to take you with me on this journey. Hi, my name is Oscar Höglund. I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Epidemic Sound and you're listening to B2B SaaS CEOs. Hi and welcome, Oscar. Hey, Yusuf. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's uh, it's a Wednesday. It's January. It's dark and cold outside in Stockholm, but I'm here in the office and inside the sun is shining, and I'm on a great mood. Sounds great. And first thing first, what does your company, Epidemic Sound, do? Please do the elevator pitch. So the elevator pitch, depending on how long the elevator ride, if it's a short (laughs) ride, I say that we're trying to soundtrack the world. At the core, that's what gets us excited. Um, If we have a slightly longer elevator ride together, Josef, then I would say that Premix Sound is trying to soundtrack the world. And we do so by providing the world's storytellers with the best catalog of music so that they can bring their stories to life. And we typically work with uh, customers who have a video story to tell. So the vast majority of our customers create content. So they're YouTubers, they're influencers, they're broadcasters, they're Netflix, but then they're basically every storyteller on the planet. And the flip side is that we have suppliers who are artists and music creators, and we help them by making sure that they can thrive creatively and commercially. We make sure that their music spreads across the world together with the world's best storytellers. And we make sure that they can monetize and earn and make a living. And you put those two together. And what we do is we soundtrack the world. Connecting the dots to the end again. Ah, amazing. (laughs) Exactly. Then we move on, Oscar, to, you mentioned it, not me, storytelling. Now I want you to tell me a story. The story of how the idea of Epidemic Sound was born. Um, I'd love to do that, Yusef. So taking a step back... um, Epidemic was founded now almost 14 years ago. I was congratulated over LinkedIn. It's a reminder of how old I'm getting, but it was 14 years ago now. And um, the way it came about was, if I take it from my perspective first, I was a mediocre management consultant working at BCG, and I was struggling to find my element. And I eventually decided to go and do something different, which at the time was um earth shattering because i'd only been there for less than two years and i wanted to do something else um and i was fortunate enough to stumble upon tv production so storytelling as i call it and i got to work in uh, magazinette out in Frihamnen at a company called zodiac television and it was amazing because i suddenly found myself in a context where i was different i was the only person into numbers i was the only person who was accustomed to working 60 70 80 hours a week And I worked with people who were very different, and that was a beautiful thing. Um, But I also found myself in a process where I stumbled upon uh, my co-founders. So there are five of us, and we come from different sides of the uh, content creation industry. So music creators and TV creators, but also online entrepreneurs like Jan Marvinbo. 
And we stumbled upon two problems. So the first problem that we stumbled upon was that at Zodiac Television, we made TV shows like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Sol Sidan, So Mycket Bättre, Let's Dance. We made tons of very successful TV shows and they did well. And music was very important in creating content. Um, it elevates the content. It's a bit like flavor if you think about food. So content without music is like food without flavor. So it's very important. And it was completely broken. Like finding music, paying for music, understanding who to license from, how to report it, what platforms it can be used on, how it can travel. Like nothing of it worked. And as a consequence, you were terrified about using music in your content. So imagine food, like you didn't want to add any flavor because you were terrified it, it would you get sued and shut down. And we took issue with that and we thought that this was wrong. Like we'd love to live in a world where adding music to content is fun. Like something you look forward to, it's creative, it's inspiring, it's umami. Like it really brings the food to the next level. So this was the first problem that we decided, let's see if we can address this. Let's see if we can build a world where adding music to content is fun. And the flip side was on, on the music side of, uh, of the equation. So we looked at a music industry, which we were passionate about, but we saw that the model wasn't really working. It was a beautiful model in theory because the music industry, as many people know, is about royalties. So typically what's happened is that musicians don't get paid anymore because everyone tells them that they'll make royalties instead. And the dirty little secret is that one, 99% don't see any royalty because there isn't enough volume. It's mostly about the hits. The other secret is that like the technology supporting the royalty payments and the identification in a global digital world doesn't really work. And so you don't connect people's work with the actual revenue streams. And so ultimately you have a music industry where music creators don't make a lot of money at all. They have second jobs and third jobs and they work at a grocery store or at the post office and have to do other things. And the industry was not optimized for music creators. They were losing out. And so we saw these two problems and we said that, huh, what if we live in a world where the music industry is such that music creators make tons of money and it's optimized for their well-being? What if we live in a world where storytellers love to add music to their content and it helps bring their stories to life? Can we marry these two together? And Swedes are remarkably bad at many things, uh, but we're very good at a few things. We're good at standing in line and also we're good at engineering and we're good at music, right? Yeah. And so we leaned into these two superpowers like engineering and music and scalability and, and a structural way of thinking. And we built Epidemic. Uh, we created a completely new infrastructure. We built this subscription model where we sold subscriptions to storytellers. We were then able to acquire tons and tons of music over the last decade and a half. We're able to both pay up front, but then also pay a new way of paying out royalties where we don't go through middlemen. We pay them directly. And so we built this great ecosystem, which works incredibly well for music creators and for storytellers. So that's how the whole thing started. And then as the company grew and grew and grew, initially people thought that we were a small idea, a small business, because they thought that, huh, like, this might be good for media companies. But then to our interaction here now, Joseph, we saw early on that 
not only did every single company on the planet Earth have a website eventually, but every single human also had a website. So we have TikTok handles, we have Facebook channels, we have LinkedIn accounts, Bumble accounts, and the list goes on. Yeah. And that same kind of digital development, we saw early on that sort of every single company on the planet Earth is going to use video. Yeah. Video to tell a story, video to get employees, video to find customers, look at your own Facebook feed or your LinkedIn feed or your TikTok feed or your YouTube feed or your YouTube shorts feed. It's all video and it all needs music to come alive. And so the opportunity turned out to be huge. The business has now grown and is enormous. But if you ask me at heart, so it's still day one. I, I always... I acknowledge we're a scale up now, but I think my natural state is this startup person uh, who's constantly struggling, constantly trying to understand and to ask questions. You are good at telling stories. I must <laughs> give you that. <laughs> I don't know. Thank you. I, I just having a big smile and listening. Well, wow, this person know how to tell a story and sell. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing, Oscar. Uh, and this leads me into the first big section of the two big sections in my podcast the big sections are leadership and business development so let's dive into leadership first thing here are you a good leader um i think that if if somebody comes into a room wearing a t-shirt that says i'm cool the only thing you can be a hundred percent sure about is that that person is not cool right do we agree on yeah. that people? yeah Um, and so there's an analogy here in terms of asking me whether or not I'm a good leader. Obviously, I think you should ask the people I get to surround myself with every day. Uh, but I'll, I'll park that initial uh, feeling to try and dodge it because um, I've had some time to think about it. And I, I'd like to think that if I am a good leader, um, I think it comes down to two things, which I think is very, very important. I think it's important that you're curious and that you're inclusive. And I'd love to elaborate. So I think being a good leader is about being curious because if you are, you find yourself asking questions, you want to understand others, both individuals, departments, roles. You want to understand the customer. You want to understand, you want to get to asking the right questions as opposed to coming up with the right answer. So I think that leaders, my nickname is Pigge, which in uh, Swedish means alert and wide awake. And I've always been a curious guy, even since I was a kid. And so I think that by asking questions, that's, that's how you get to being a good leader, because you help other people formulate answers and come up with sort of where you want to go and what you should be doing. And I think that the other part is maybe being inclusive. So it's important to make sure you give everyone a chance to make their voice heard. I think that's important, obviously, depending on context, but it, it, it allows for a few things. So if, if people feel that they're being heard and they're being seen, this creates ownership amongst people, because if your opinion is valued, if you come to expect that I will be asked what I think and what my opinion is, you'll do the homework, you'll do the reading, you'll be uh, interested, you'll be up to date and you'll have like you'll have opinions that creates ownership. And it also creates a culture of, of creativity and a culture of excellence. I think it's a very Scandinavian trait that a lot of Anglo-Saxon companies, there's a hierarchy. And so the boss comes up with an idea and people are just doers who are supposed to materialize uh, that. I think 
the way that I run Epidemic, at least, is that I try and flip that upside down and we make sure it's the best idea. So I'm thrilled when people have better ideas than myself. It happens more times than maybe I'd like, but it happens all the time and that's a good thing. Uh, but so creating that culture where you want to put your ideas forwards, you make sure that it's not the top idea, but it's the best idea that wins. And so fueling that maybe makes me a good leader, I like to think. Yeah, I, I think so too, after hearing your answer and input here. And I know my first question here is quite edgy, but it's just to get the talk going. <laughs> so uh, talking superpowers, mm. can you please, if, you, if you're going to nail down one or two, what, what is the most essential core powers for yourself, according to you? I'll do you one better. I'll, uh, I'll share three things which I've heard other people say. And so one, I think that I'm a source of energy. I think I have the ability to spread energy and enthusiasm to other people. Um, it's a superpower. It's not, it's not like one of these ships which has a nuclear reactor, which is infinite, which can sort of go like, it never has to stop. So I have to charge that power. So I'm very keen and I think I'm good at giving energy. My caveat is I also need to collect energy and I, we can get back to that later on. But I think one of my superpowers is being a source of energy, which I think is important if you're a leader. Yeah. Um, number two is I think I'm resilient. Like I'm persistent. Um, Epidemic is 14 years in. This is the sixth company I'm, I'm part of co-founding. Um, I sometimes joke about myself. If, if if I had a spirit animal, think about one of those donkeys you see on a postcard from Mallorca in like the 80s with a hat on, but with the two satchels hanging down with lots of bricks on their back. I like to joke and say that I'm a donkey. I, it's my super strength is that I get shit done. I take things to completion. I never take a knee. If, if I have to pull all-nighters, I do that. If I have to move mountains, we'll do that. But being resilient is much more important than being brilliant. You can be brilliant once in a while, but as a leader, you need to sort of be it in. It's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So that's the second one. And then the third one, this is my brother once told me this and it stuck with me. He said that I think I have the ability, you maybe can call it superpower, to build trust. So for some reason, people around me tend to trust me. I'm not sure if it comes down to, we joked about storytelling before and stuff like that, but I, I thoroughly enjoy rhetoric and people and I'm curious. And so maybe somehow there's something in that that's sort of, I like to think that I'm good, good at building trust. I'm obviously very adamant about holding myself accountable to my word and to my promises. And over time, that, that too builds trust. But being honest and fair and transparent is, I think, very, very important. And it's helped me a lot. Great. I don't need to follow up here because you say it and you explain why. So I get to the root with the why also. So yeah, it's a pleasure to interview you, Oscar. And this, uh, yeah, now we're going to, this is a, a small curveball here in the leadership segment. We will see if it flies or not. This is an odd thing. Can you share an odd thing you do or a leader above you in the past have done that you seem that initially it felt really odd and strange, but afterwards it have had a great amount of impact mm. anything here you think of so um let's tie that back to one of the previous questions and maybe put an, a nordic uh nordic culture hat on so th the thing which i've found and then myself found doing 
is admitting that I don't know the answer to things. And I think that that's something quite rare because going back to Anglo-Saxon culture, there's always the assumption that if you're in charge, you're assumed to know all the answers. And if not, you fake it till you make it. And it's a signal of weakness if you, as a leader, say that I don't know sort of how we want to, how we get from A to B. I found that the flip side is true in Scandinavian management culture. Um, I found that sort of admitting that you don't know the answer is an odd thing for many people to do, but I've done it multiple times myself. And I think it has incredible impact because by saying that I don't know the answer, you're implicitly telling the organization, but I trust you to come up with this and provide it. I'm constantly saying that and this is not being, uh, this is not a humble brag. It's not sort of false modesty, but I always say this. I want to hire people who are smarter than myself. I want to hire people who tell me what to do, not the opposite. I'm terrified of the notion. If I'm the smartest person in the room, there's something very, very wrong because you should always be trying to sort of hire people who compliment you, not across all things, because I acknowledge that there are some things I'm really good at, but there are many things where I'm mediocre at best and making sure that you lean into that and are honest and then sort of use this this quote i don't know the answer but maybe joseph you can have a think and come back with, with some suggestions that empowers people it emboldens people they're less afraid of making a mistake there's infinite upside there's very little downside you get ownership collaboration and off you go so i think that like being comfortable and saying that sort of I don't know. I think that's it's odd. That's a it's it's odd, but and very powerful. Uh, th- th- this was exactly something like this I f- fished for here, and okay, cool. we got it. Thank so you. we move on to bad things, the worst things, because everything isn't happy, clappy with leadership. Oscar, what according to you is the worst things about being a leader? So. I think about it this way, uh, Joseph. If you're running a company for a long period of time, if you're lucky, things are constantly changing. And that's super challenging. Like the culture we live in begs of people to always say that I love change. But the truth is most people don't because change is a pain in the ass, right? You have to change your routines and change change the world around you quite a bit. And so I think that one of the toughest things you have to think about as a leader is how you set yourself up for success in the long run. And for me, it's ultimately about owning your endorphins. Like, how do you make sure that you're having fun constantly? Because if for a prolonged period of time, you realize that you're not having fun, uh, you'll stop being good at what you do because you'll lose your passion. And so name of the game is like, how do you, how do you guard your endorphins? And as the company grows, your role changes over time. And that can be very difficult. So I've had to sort of relearn, redefine my role to make sure that I get endorphins from what I do. And the way I see it is very much like multiple years ago, I was trying to persuade my family to be as enthusiastic about skiing and winter holidays as I was. They, they were less impressed than myself. But we went up to order and we did sort of a ton of fun stuff. And and the big move towards the end was a dog sled ride across Jamtlanska uh, Fjällen. And the weather was amazing. It was really, really cold. There were 10 dogs, my entire family, my wife, our three children. And we sat in that. 
And as we sort of sped out into the beautiful Swedish uh, wilderness, I was standing at the back of the sled and there were these 10 dogs pulling it. And it's very clear, it became super clear, almost like a vision that I had there that at my core, in my heart, I am a husky. I'm one of those dogs. I can't explain it, but I love to get into a siela. I'm not sure what that is in English, but sort of a harness and then just pull heavy sleds with other dogs, like running tongue out, sweaty, like pulling with a team. There's some kind of order. But if you've been in a sled, you see that the dogs change side and they run and they shit at the same time with a little bit of chaos. But they love pulling that heavy sled and they take inspiration and lead from each other. However, my role as I was standing on the sled was not to be a husky. I was standing at the back. I was responsible for my family. And my job was to look at the horizon and, and tell the sled, do we go over the ice? Is it thick enough? Do we go through the woods? Do we go up the hill? Where do we take the break? Trying to see onto the horizon and around it and plan. And the analogy here is that in terms of owning your endorphins, when the company is small, the only thing I did was I was a husky and I ran just as hard, if not harder than everyone else. And I led by example. I love meeting people, sales calls. Like I could walk into any room in the company and I knew basically more than most about any given thing. But then as the company progressed, my role was much more standing at the back of the sled, like incentive programs, management, uh, sort of st structure, follow-up, communication, uh, office space. I, I never found myself in the meetings, which I typically enjoyed. I had different chores. I had to look to the horizon to make sure that the sled was going in the right direction. And managing that transition is super difficult because if you're, if you're a dog and you never get to pull, you become unhappy after a while. You're only doing things which has tons of value for the company, but if you're not doing things that you really enjoy, you're going to be unhappy eventually. And so the worst thing and the biggest challenge about being leader, and I wouldn't say worst, but the most important thing, the challenge is own your endorphins. Make sure that you set yourselves up for success. Some of the ways of dealing with that is being very honest, thinking about it. I sometimes put myself in the husky position. So I do sales meetings. I do some startup things. I go into problem solving. We have different office spaces. I love going up and sitting in the office space, which is under development. There's no finesse. There are no chairs. There are no desks. It's, not, it's very rough. I love being in that environment. That I can then go and do other things in terms of prepare board meetings or go and... Um, do things which are more outside my comfort zone or have to do with more uh, sort of cybersecurity reporting or whatever it might be. So make sure that you take responsibility for your own endorphins and you set yourself up for the long term. Because now I can say it's great standing on the sled, looking at the horizon. I've really come to appreciate that and think about it that way. But you need to own that transition because your role is constantly changing and that's difficult. Now you did it again. You told an amazing story and drive it back to a learning and concrete stuff. Yes. <laughs> yes. My head works very much like that. So telling anecdotes, telling stories. Sometimes people probably close to me would get super annoyed because there's always like a story, but there's always a point. And I think it just speaks to our brains work differently. And my brain works very much in analogies and stories and trying to, trying to see some kind of pattern.
I think the most people work like that. They don't admit it otherwise because we are cave people. We like to sit around the fire and tell stories and gossip, etc. It's super simple yeah. if you just look at the basics. But uh, last thing here in the leadership, Oscar. And now, now you only need to give me one word. Maybe you will squeeze in something more. I know how an entrepreneurs works. But this is the last question here in leadership. If you have to summarize leadership from your point of view with one word, what would that be? The one ring to rule them all is curiosity. I think it's if, if you're not curious, it's not going to work. You need to be curious about your customers, about your colleagues, about your competitors, about the culture, about the climate that you're working in. Like You need to ask more questions than you give answers. I think curiosity is how you check yourself. Nice. Thank you. And we need to move on because I have several questions left and we don't have... Uh, we don't have too much time. So moving on to a fun fact. I want to know a fun fact about yourself that most people don't know about. So everywhere I go in work, I carry a Rubik's Cube. And so um, the reason is I saw this video a couple of years ago with uh, Justin Bieber, um, karaoke carpool, when he was sort of singing his song with James Corbin and driving around. It's a famous YouTube show. And uh, the guy, James, took up a Rubik's Cube and he said, so, Justin, I hear you can solve a Rubik's Cube. And the guy, and he did. And uh, it looked so cool, so relaxing. Um, I felt that sort of, shit, I need to learn how you solve a Rubik's Cube. So I bought one, go into YouTube, look at all these videos. And it turns out that solving a Rubik's Cube is incredible. Like micro breaks, it gives you a perfect sense of, it gives you a sense of accomplishment. It puts your mind at ease. You think about something else. I think it gives you like micro meditation and it's, it's a terrific way. So now I, 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 I carry it around as an attribute, as a reminder that I'm in work mode. You need to sort of be kind towards yourself. We do tons of stuff, but set yourself up for small success. When I need to think about something, I'm playing around with it and sort of, it helps me focus and be present. I don't do it in meetings. I bring it with me, but between and going to meetings when I'm when we're trying to solve problems, it's a good reminder that we're problem solvers at heart. This is what we do, and having problems is a luxury. That's they're supposed to be there because we can and we should want to solve them. So, um, fun fact: is that I'm crazy about Rubik's cubes. This is a Chinese speed cube. So I started with a normal one. So this is like the Rolls Royce. I can do this in about 42 seconds, which is not great. If you're like, I should be much, much better, but it's not about the speed or the smarts. It's just like solving problems is fun. Yeah, that is a great fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> it's time for a topic of Oscar's choice. And I want you to talk about something you're truly nerdy and passionate about. So um, you gave me a slight heads up around this specific topic. And so I thought a little bit, and I want to continue on my theme. And so I want to just serenade like the beauty of being into like mundane problem solving. And so I spoke about a Rubik's cube, but so I love, uh, what's the English word? Like a jigsaw puzzle, like puzzle. I love to sit down with a 500, 1000, 2000 uh, puzzle. I love Rubik's cube. I love Sudoku. 
with my wife, we do crosswords, like these old people stuff, old school, non-digital things. It's a blessing to get to do these things on vacations or Sunday mornings. Like when everything else you do is so very digital, everything is on the line, it's complicated. Like going old school on sort of wooden puzzles are by far better than plastic puzzles because they're much more um, uh, sort of exquisite in how they're cut. So pattern recognition and problem solving is much more fun. Like sitting with crosswords in the morning with a cup of coffee with the person you love, doing that together. Like I'm very passionate about doing these things. So ask my wife or my kids, like doing uh, jigsaw puzzles, rubrics, crossword puzzles, Sudoku, these kind of things. I'd very much like to encourage people listening on this very digital, forward-leaning, entrepreneurial, create-value group of people. Try and do something once in a while, which is the exact opposite. Like, go old school. Try a push-up. So the topic of Oscar's shows was, from my framing, old school, non-digital problem-solving. Yes, yes. There we have it. And it's time for external questions because i want to include the community because it's not me shooting questions that's why i have the topic of your choice and that's why i have external questions mm. so two things today two two people two questions and the first one is from jenny clark at Haley hr and this is her question hi oscar i would love to hear your thoughts on keeping or developing a great company culture while growing into new markets we just recently grew from only targeting the swedish market to having five new markets and we want to keep the haley feeling do you have any tips for us thanks so that's a great question um it's one which we've uh, wrestled with a lot as we've grown and scaled into multiple markets just as uh, as Yanni. I think the following has served us well and we'll see if 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 it has value for for Yanni and over at Haley HR. You should always try and stick to your principles or stick to your values. I think that these are things that they should be constant and something that you always believe in despite location. I think that sticking to these values, in our case, we have four, which are crucial. So let's celebrate, come together, be a force for good and rebel without the pause. These are four values that we believe in that transcend like all countries, all states and everything that we do. So despite the world changing, our focus, products, customer experience, your values should never change. And I think that you should bring that with you, define these values and see that sort of as you scale sort of outside your home territories, you'll come across local quirks or local culture or local norms, which are sometimes different and, and you'll have to challenge yourself. But you need to, one, check yourself and make sure that you're always true to your principles. That's a, a good guiding um, light. And then the second part, sort of if that sits well and if that's something that you've already done, I think that as you scale abroad and you think about culture, you should think about the term culture fit in the context of that's not the most desirable thing. I would argue that the thing you're looking for is culture add. So as you scale your business, and especially if you have customers around the world, if you have a great culture, that's perfect. But try not to just add people who fit with your culture, but rather people who add to your culture, who can bring something new, a new flavor, Like you want to be constantly evolving because otherwise I think you'll find yourself in a tough position. So be 
clear about the principles, never waver from them, be careful about your culture, but make sure you don't just hire for a culture fit, but think about culture add also. Jenny, thank you so much for your question. We move on to the second external question, and this is from Arvid Kvarnström at Televox. And this is his question. Hi, Oscar. How much does the initial idea from 2009 differ from today's concept? And what has been your greatest milestones? So I think you always need to be careful when you listen to founders who talk about their initial ideas. I'm no exception, but I'm going to be brutally honest here. Um, I think that the idea and the direction has always been the same for us. But the ability to condense it in a good way has dramatically improved. It was either Mark Twain or Winston Churchill or sort of some famous dude, I think. It's probably a woman, but it's a, a dude to credit for it, I'm, I'm sure, who said that I don't have time to write a short letter. So here comes a long letter. And I think that getting this story down to be very short is the difficult part. So initially about the elevator pitch, when we started the business, the creator economy didn't exist. The passion economy didn't exist. The economy wasn't a thing. So I needed a very long elevator ride to give my elevator pitch about soundtracking in the world, about storytellers, music creators, like Twitch didn't exist. In, um, Instagram wasn't a thing. YouTube shorts hadn't been invented. Like none of that existed. So even though our premise was the same, the two problems, I had to have a very long elevator ride. But now sort of, I can be in a very short elevator. I'd say, look, I want to soundtrack the world. This is the team. These are the two problems. We're part of the um, creator economy and everyone gets it immediately. So I think that that's the honest truth. Like stick to your initial idea vision, but constantly try and iterate and, and distill it and put it down to make it shorter and more crisp and shorter and more crisp. As to what has been your greatest milestone, there have been a couple of different ones. Um, one very vivid one, uh, which, which I often think about was when I, I was with my youngest daughter, uh, I was, uh, at home trying to get her to burp. Uh, we were watching television. I was patting her on the back. There was no burp. I was looking at SVT one and our music was playing in the background. I switched to SVT two. Our music was playing in the background. I switched to TV three, TV four, Canal Fam, Sata TV. I got every single channel in Sweden at the same time. They were all playing different parts of our catalog, but it was all our music. So that was my first big product market fit moment. So child burped. Uh, I was all emotional, sent an email to, um, to my, uh, to my co-founders. So uh, that, that was a big deal for me. And I think, yeah, I'll, I'll pause at that. Thank you for sharing it, Arvid. Thank you for a great question. We leave this segment and entering business development. Top KPIs on a company level. What's the most important for you? And quickly also the why. Why have you chosen them? We have three go-to areas. And sort of given that you now know what we do as a listener, uh, we're in the music space. So we have pump up the volume, foster the roster, and it's go time. And I think I'll dive into the top two. So pump up the volume is about growing our total user base of paying subscribers and in parallel increasing the MPS score. So tracking total user base of paying subscribers, seeing as we're a subscription business. So that's a very important top metric. 
underneath that obviously sits sort of growth top of funnel, but also retention, but you put them together and that's sort of growing the paying subscriber base. And then parallel to that is the MPS, which is a more forward-looking metric because it sort of it tells how well we're solving problems for our customers, how much value we're creating. And I think that's a good proxy that sort of helps you understand to what extent you'll retain and ultimately grow your subscriber base. So the first one is pump up the volume. And the second one is foster the roster. And so... What do you say? Foster the roster. So this, the first one is relates to our customers and the storytellers. And foster the roster is to the other side of our equation, so our suppliers. So this is for the artists. So foster the roster, we're very clear about um, the music uh, MPS, uh, how many musicians are able to support themselves through our business model, what's the impact we're having in the music creator uh, economy as well. And so I'll, I'll pause there and say, sort of, I don't want to go into too many core KPIs because I, I don't think it's relevant because all companies have different approaches and are in different parts of their cycle. But I think the thing that I'd like to share here is that sort of, we have two or three main areas. So pump up the volume is the stakeholders, which is around our customers. Foster the roster is uh, the KPIs where we track um, our main suppliers. And it's go time is when we track ourselves internally. What are we doing to make sure that the, the team is uh, set up for success and sort of being the best version of itself? I love the names here. Everything about you and Alexander is stories and yeah, amazing. Okay, we move forward to, can you share some of your best practices around go-to-market strategies for a startup? So the best practice, if you're a startup and you want a good go-to-market plan, I think the biggest favor you can do yourself is understand the value chain. And what I mean by that is when we launched Epidemic Sound, we wanted to test the product on TV in Sweden. And there are about 5,000 freelancers who create all the TV shows in Sweden. And it was impossible for us to get meetings with these 5,000 freelancers. It was impossible for us to encourage them to use our music instead of our big competitors who had been around for 100 years. And so we had to scratch our heads. We looked at the value chain and we saw that all of these 5,000 freelancers, they all work for 50 production companies. We can't do 5,000 meetings, but can we do 50 meetings with 50 production companies? We tried and we realized we can't do 50 meetings with 50 production companies. Who sits on top of the 50 production companies? There are four broadcasters in all of Sweden who provide all of the work to all of the 50 production companies. It's SVT, it's TV3 or MTG, it's Channel 4, and now it's of uh, Discovery Group. Can we muster four meetings? And we said, yes, we can do four meetings. And we put all of our energy into getting these meetings right, the incentives, the setup, the opportunity, like what we could do. And when we encouraged those four companies to give us a chance, those four companies booked 50 meetings with 50 production companies who had to do what they said. And those 50 production companies booked 5,000 meetings with all the TV editors and say, you have to use Epidemic Sound. And so I'll stop here because I think sort of it's fairly clear that as a startup, you're very small, you have limited resources, but if you understand the value chain and who has agency and who calls the shots, that's how you get like good go-to-market strategies. 
Last question here regarding the business development segment for this time at least is I'm collecting data points for my own tool, Oscar. I'm building a sales tool, VAM, with the core video. What would you say is the best way to do code outreach to you in a modern way? How would you like to get approach? So I have two pieces of advice. The first one would be, um, if it's truly cold, um, try and do some smart research about uh, the individual or the company that you're reaching out to. So you understand, best case, you understand their headspace and their problems. And success is not you giving them an answer, but success is you in that outreach, being able to show to them that you understand the kind of problems, the kind of uh, trade-offs that this person, this company or this industry is going through. And I think by sparking that sense of empathy, that's your best shot. So don't focus on giving them an answer. Focus on like sort of here's how I would formulate your problems. And so that's that's one part. And the second one, which I use myself and I have for many years, uh, is make fantastic introductions for people all the time. So if you reach out to me, Yusuf, and you want an intro to somebody else that I happen to know, I'll always do the intro. I'll turn it into a tiny essay. I'll try and be funny. I'll do homework. I'll sort of make sure that I look you up on LinkedIn and the other person. I'll say what you have in common. And I'll give like this exceptional intro. And if I keep on doing that, that will pay off because then these people will do intros to yourself and you ask someone for a favor. It becomes like a thing, like getting a, a Joseph intro or an Oscar intro is like a thing. And that way, sort of, I think you can, you can build your way into, they're not cold outreaches, but getting intros where you come out guns blazing just puts you in a completely different situation where you can have a much more efficient funnel down the line in terms of getting to the desired outcome. Thank you so much. And now we have entered the roundup. We only have three quick ones left. And the first thing here, I, I love this one. If you need to give yourself, your younger self, one to top three things to think of, what would you tell yourself? So one, be resilient and build resilient teams because it's going to take a long time. Two, as a founder, you need to be a talent spotter and a talent bouncer. Your job is to identify talent and so get them into your bar. So uh, that's what you're doing. So get them into the building. And number three, uh, and this is very serious, very important, and it's take your job seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. Always laugh, always be close to giggles, make, make fun at your own expense. Don't take yourself too seriously. You can take your job seriously, but not yourself. Oh, thank you. And second last question. This is just me fishing for other cool, smart guests. Which other two B2B socios do you think are interesting and fun and would you like to listen to if I would interview them here in B2B socios? Um, so I'll give you two. Um, I think you should talk to um, someone called Elin Becklund. She's a CTO over at Arc Capital. Um, Can't do CTOs, unfortunately. It's only CEOs. Only CEOs. Talk to Oliver over at Arc Capital, who's the CEO. I think what they're building is super interesting with their forecasting platform and being able to provide um, capital to growing companies. And maybe something in sort of in the AI realm, uh, like Sana Labs, maybe you will. You uh, will Maybe talk to him. Thank you for two great names. And we have entered the last question. I put my fingers crossed and hope for a fluffy yet some concrete numbers. And this is Oscar. 
where will epidemic sound be in five years? So in five years, I think we will be in a place where we're no longer soundtracking the world, but we're also soundtracking Mars and maybe the moon. I hope that Elon and the team get their act together so we can colonize more planets and, and move beyond one planet. So we've gone from soundtracking the world to soundtracking the universe. Um, and I think that maybe kidding aside, we'll be in a place where as an entrepreneur, you've, you're never done, basically. So it's less about those big audacious goals. So they're important too. Um, but it's about incremental improvements. You see all the areas that can be improved and improved. So I think it's, it's living in, in those two areas. So constantly improving, iterating, doing micro improvements. That's when you find me in five years. But ambitions wise, we're done soundtracking the world. We're soundtracking the universe. I wish you the best of luck with that, Oscar. And now I'm quickly turning to you who has been listening. Two things. Press the subscription button and tell a friend or a colleague to listen to an amazing episode with Oscar Höglund in B2B SaaS And Oscar, a huge thank you for putting aside around 30 minutes together with me to help the community and me to keep on learning. Thank you, Joseph. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And more importantly, thank you everyone for listening. Please reach out if you want to.